Hi, this is Radio Prague International with me, Ian Willoughby. The Czech radio archives give us a nuanced picture of the months leading up to the Munich Agreement of September 1938 that resulted in Nazi Germany annexing large areas of Czechoslovakia. So many recordings survive, we can reconstruct the events leading up to Munich almost day by day. The archives offer a sober warning of how easily a democratic state can be shattered through rumour, lies and propaganda. And David Vaughan has been going through them. Hello, hello. Prague, Czechoslovakia calling. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. That was Radio Prague greeting listeners to its English programmes back in 1937. As the radio's international service, Radio Prague had been founded a year earlier, in response to the growing propaganda onslaught from Nazi Germany. Tensions in the Sudetenland, the mainly German-speaking border regions of Czechoslovakia, were rising rapidly, with Hitler making no secret of his territorial ambitions. A certain man came to this country from across the sea just recently, quite unbiased, to gather information in general. But he seemed particularly... Here is a British journalist whose name is given in the radio archives as L. Hill, with a few statistics about Czechoslovakia's German speakers. He was lucky enough to get certain figures from sources reliable enough, and here's what he got. The German citizens of Czechoslovakia number 3,230,000 altogether and are thus 22% of the country's population. Out of 300 MPs, they are represented by 72 and by 37 out of 150 in the Senate. He goes on to describe life in the German-speaking and mixed areas of the country and concludes that everything is far more complicated than the nationalists are trying to suggest. I saw German people there with Czech names and Czechoslovaks with German names. Every third person with whom I spoke had some not very distant ancestor of foreign origin, or he and his ancestor, if Czech, came from a German community, and if German, from a Czech one. Apart from the language, I didn't see much difference between the Czech and German towns. I saw Czech believers given the communion by a German priest, and I saw a Czech politician speaking to German workmen on the necessity of the country's unity. All this means that not only the Czech minorities of these districts, but also certain of the German inhabitants themselves, are against separation. As the threat of war loomed, international interest in Czechoslovakia was growing. The young British historian Hugh Seaton Watson came here in September 1937. Talking to Radio Prague, he was far from optimistic about the country's future. She has many difficult problems to face and among them the same problem of the rights of other nationalities, which the Austrian Empire failed to solve. For within her territories are three and a half million Germans and half a million Hungarians. Since the rise of Hitler to power, and since the slump, she has felt increasingly the need to work with her neighbours. Unfortunately, the memories of the injustices they suffered in the past, and the sense that they have won their freedom by their own struggle, make it difficult for the Czech people to be conciliatory. Another British visitor at that time was Edgar Young, a First World War veteran, journalist and a left-wing politician. At the end of 1936, he paid a visit to the Sudetenland, by that time dominated politically by the Nazi-sympathising Sudeten-German party, to see the situation for himself. He spoke to Radio Prague. Before Christmas, I went for a journey through the districts along the German border, between Karlovy or Karlsbad, and Liberec, or Reichenberg, which are inhabited 
by a preponderance of German-speaking people. These districts, which are mainly industrial and which depended for their prosperity upon foreign trade, are suffering severely from the effects of the world economic crisis and of the increasing tendency towards autarky. The sufferings of these Czechoslovak Germans are due in no small measure to the selfish economic policy of Germany and to the past unpatriotic actions of their own employers, who are mainly Germans of the opposition. Yet they are represented to the victims as being the fault of the Czechoslovak government. There are nevertheless, even in these heavily propagandic districts, considerable numbers of democratic Germans who are loyally collaborating with the government, in which indeed they have their own representatives. There is hope, therefore, that the insistent friendliness of the democratic majority of the population, German, no less than Czech, will eventually triumph over that hysteria which is at present causing so much heart-burning among the three and a quarter million German-speaking subjects of Czechoslovakia. The British journalist and politician Edgar Young, talking in February 1937. One thing that makes this recording particularly interesting is the insight it gives us into the political pressures that Sudeten Germans themselves were under from Nazi-sympathising politicians within the Sudetenland. Edgar Young's hopes of reconciliation proved tragically over-optimistic. We are calling Professor Albert Einstein of Princeton University. At 11pm, on a cold and snowy Christmas Eve in 1937, Czechoslovak radio attempted a fascinating radio experiment. A radio bridge was set up to bind three continents, reaching India in the east and across the Atlantic to the United States in the west. The Czech writer Karel Čapek and the inventor of the arc lamp, the 90-year-old František Křižík, exchanged messages of goodwill for the coming year, with Albert Einstein in Princeton and with the great Indian poet Rabindranath Tagore in Bengal. The experiment was to show the binding power of radio and the solidarity between people of goodwill at a time when the world was under a growing threat from dictatorship. Praha and all Czechoslovak stations calling the United States of America Professor Albert Einstein of Princeton University. Already in America? Storms above the Atlantic meant that they had some difficulty getting the signal across. Once more, already in America? In the end, František Křižík did manage to read his message to Einstein, first in Czech and then through a fellow professor in English. Professor Einstein, we are so far from each other and yet so near. It is science that has shortened all distances. Today, I should like to tell you of my belief that people and nations will be brought closer and closer by means of science. Professor Einstein, with all my heart, I must wish you all health and happiness for the really bright new year. We are sure that through your noble work, you will continue to make great contributions to science and to the understanding of all nations. Dr. Einstein, a happy new year to you 
and peace and brotherhood to all people of good will. Einstein's reply in German was completely lost in the static and in the end had to be sent by telegraph. It was read by a radio announcer. Sie alle wissen, dass die Tschechoslowakei unter schwierigen Bedingungen jene politischen Freiheiten und Menschenrechte schützt und verteidigt. We know, he said, that in difficult circumstances Czechoslovakia is protecting and defending political freedoms and human rights, without which it is impossible for our spirit to flourish. And he went on to send to Prague the hopes and heartfelt wishes of all friends of truth, humanity and freedom. Karel Čapek's message to India was read in English and then also in Bengali by the well-known Czech professor, Vincenz Lesny. The quality of the sound is poor, so we'll play just a very short extract. Regardless of the great distance between our countries, however, we stretch out our hands in brotherly fashion to you, the poet of wisdom. Rabindranath Tagore's reply also came by telegram and was read by an announcer. Friends in Czechoslovakia, in the terrible storm of hatred, violence, raging over humanity, except at the goodwill of an old idealist who clings to his faith in the common destiny of the East and West, and all people on the earth. Technologically, the radio bridge hadn't all gone smoothly, but the shared message of goodwill at the end of 1937, at a time when the clouds of world war were looming ever larger, was more than clear. Through the crackles, I think it still speaks to us today. This was a message of goodwill and peace which lived up three continents, if not in a technical way, but in goodwill and mutual understanding. The year that followed that remarkable Christmas broadcast in 1937 was to be a tragic one for Czechoslovakia. The period leading up to the Munich Agreement in September 1938 when Britain and France gave Hitler the green light to annex vast areas of Czechoslovakia, is very well documented in the Czech radio archives. The archives also reveal that this was one of the first international diplomatic crises to be played out on the airwaves. Through radio, the Munich crisis became an international propaganda battle, with greater immediacy than ever seen before. Die Deutschen jagt, geht trotz aller internationaler Proteste weiter. Under the tight control of propaganda minister Josef Goebbels, Germany's state radio systematically stirred up discontent in the Sudetenland, with stories of Czech atrocities that were at best exaggerated and frequently completely fabricated. The anti-German witch hunt, the Deutschlandsender reporter says in a report that is typical for the months leading up to September 1938, continues in defiance of all international protests. In numerous places, despite what the Prague press and the Czech radio say, there have been clashes, abuses and thousands of arrests. In a cat-and-mouse game, Czechoslovak radio, including its international broadcasts in English, tried to counteract these reports coming from Germany. Once again tonight, we must perform the distasteful task of refuting further invented reports broadcast by the German wireless stations. It is not true that directors and deans of the German universities in Prague were forced, at the point of the gun, to sign declaration of loyalty to the state. 
this absurd allegation was denied by the rectors and deans themselves in a statement made today denying that any pressure whatever was used against them. That particular voice was Gordon Skilling, who after his return to his native Canada went on to become a prominent historian of Central and Eastern Europe. When I interviewed him, no less than 62 years later, in the year 2000, he looked back to that time. I decided to do a research on Czech history for my doctorate, and I came here to do my research, and then I was fortunate to be employed by Radio Journal, broadcasting in English to North America. And this happened to coincide with the crisis at the time uh, leading up to Munich. I prepared an English bulletin based on Czech news bulletins and the newspapers and broadcast pretty regularly. Compared with Nazi Germany, Czechoslovakia was not adept at the art of modern propaganda, as Edgar Young had already observed in 1937. It is unfortunate that Czechoslovakia is known to most foreigners largely, if not entirely, through the propaganda of her enemies. The Czechoslovaks are only now beginning to realize the dangerous effects of the new technique of propaganda, which consists in telling lies and half-truths with such conviction and consistency that even the victims begin to wonder what is really the truth. They have yet to devise an effective counter to it, and in the meanwhile, it would be a good thing if more foreigners were to visit the Republic to see for themselves how things are and to tell their countrymen the plain truth. By the late summer of 1938, Hitler's Germany was demanding nothing less than the immediate annexation of the entire Sudetenland. All parts of Bohemia and Moravia with a German-speaking majority. The Sudeten German Party had made big gains among German speakers in local elections earlier that year, and the Nazi rhetoric of their leaders was increasingly unambiguous. Here is one prominent Sudeten German politician, Wilhelm Sebekowski, talking at a huge political rally in Dresden on the 19th of September 1938, a few days after his party had been banned in Czechoslovakia for leading an attempted coup in the Sudetenland. Victory will be ours, he told an excited crowd, because the vision of Adolf Hitler must triumph. And two weeks later, victory was indeed theirs, as Britain and France allowed Nazi Germany to march into the Sudetenland. Yet there were also Sudeten Germans who remained vehemently opposed to Hitler. The leader of the Sudeten German Social Democrats, Wenzel Jaksch, gave a moving talk on Radio Prague's English shortwave broadcasts on the 16th of September 1938, just days before the fateful Munich conference. Czechs and Germans cannot annihilate each other. Each nationality has its failings and its virtues. Somehow or other, the formula for an honest and peaceful cooperation of the nationalities has eventually to be found. Not only in our country, but in the whole of Europe. Let us join all our forces to avoid that our home borderland will become a cause of conflict or a battlefield. Let us create a higher standard of cooperation of the two nationalities who dwell upon a soil assigned to them by destiny and which are called to be the bridge linking the German and Slav peoples. The Sudeten German Social Democrat leader, Wenzel Jaksch. 
Radio Prague also broadcast an address by the anti-Nazi German priest Emanuel Josef Reichenberger, who had spent decades working with the poor in and around the city of Liberec. He appealed in vain to Sudeten Germans not to let themselves be seduced by the fanatical rhetoric of their leaders. We are standing on the edge of a precipice. An unbounded campaign of hate has claimed its first victims. I speak as a German who truly loves his people and home and wishes to protect them from destruction. We must not bear the burden of the hatred and curses of the rest of the world. I speak as a human being and a Christian who sees God's image in every human soul, who believes in worthier ways of settling human and interstate differences than war and annihilation. Sudeten German men and women, Think of your responsibility for your family before God, your home, and our people. Pray, work, sacrifice for peace. God wishes it. That was Emanuel Reichenberger talking on Czechoslovak radio on the 17th of September 1938. Just four days later, Czechoslovak radio listeners were to witness one of the most dramatic moments in the radio's history. The government announced that it was willing to succumb to German pressure and would give up large areas of the country's borderlands to Nazi Germany. By this time, it was clear that Britain and France would not be willing to fight for Czechoslovakia's territorial integrity and that for the Czechoslovak government to say no would mean invasion. The announcement sent a shockwave through Czechoslovak society and in Prague, immediately thousands took to the streets in protest. Our archives include a description of the atmosphere in Prague by the British journalist Jonathan Griffin, who was later to become the wartime head of European intelligence at the BBC. Everyone who took part turned out into the streets in order to show somehow, as best they could, one thing, that they would rather fight and die for their republic even if the cause were completely hopeless. That was the sole aim of this rising of the Czechoslovak people. And the crowd knew where they were heading. A crowd burst into the Prague broadcasting station, breaking a little glass in the process. But once inside, did it loot and smash, as a revolutionary mob would have done? No. All it asked was to be allowed to speak through the microphone to the peoples of the world, to explain to them that it would rather die than yield, and to ask for a government composed of its beloved soldiers. As the veteran Czech broadcaster Miloslav Dizman later remembered, the crowd had heard the bad news of the government's decision through the airwaves, and therefore they felt that it was through the airwaves that the decision could be reversed. Dozens broke into the radio building here on Vinohradská street and eventually the programme editor, who himself could sympathise only too well with the anger of the crowd, allowed a small group to approach the microphone. Češi, Slováci a Němci, žijící v Československé republice, žádáme... A man, and to this day we don't know who he was, appealed for Czechoslovakia to be allowed to fight and for a military government to be set up. 
He was clearly not used to the microphone and his words drifted often incoherently from subject to subject. But the message was more than clear. We appeal to all Czechs, Slovaks and Germans living in our Czechoslovak Republic to await the next decision of the people who are demanding on all fronts that the territory which we have built up and lived on for centuries and for which our boys, our fathers and families have shed their blood is not given up without a fight. In the coming days, war really did seem close. Hitler suddenly stepped up his demands, a mobilization was declared in Czechoslovakia, and World War I hero General Jan Sirovi became Prime Minister. But did this amount to a military coup? Joan Griffin, whose husband John we have just heard reporting on the dramatic events at the radio, thought otherwise. In most countries, a government with a general at its head would mean a military dictatorship. Here, it means a democracy ready to defend itself. To begin with, the setting up of the new government is an answer to the clearly expressed will of the people. For the thousands who demonstrated two days ago in Prague and in other towns wanted to show only two things. They would rather die than yield, even if they were deserted and surrounded. And they wanted a government with one of their dear generals at its head. But not only was the setting up of the new government an expression of the will of the people, one can be perfectly sure that it will never degenerate into a military dictatorship. The tradition of Masaryk, who believed that the army should be the instrument of the republic and not a political organization, pervades this army. It is not just a phrase in the constitution, it is an unquestioned conviction. Joan and Jonathan Griffin were far from being alone as foreign journalists covering the Sudeten crisis. At that time, as you may know, there descended on Prague hordes of international journalists. Gordon Skilling, 62 years later, remembering back to those days. It was, I think, almost the first occasion of this kind of international broadcasting, and very many famous journalists came. Some of their reports survive in the radio archive and they offer some lively accounts of the atmosphere in Prague in the second half of September 1938. This is John T. Whittaker of the Chicago Daily News at the microphone. At 10.15 last night, the radio sounded out. Complete mobilization was ordered. Our struggle is just, said the radio, for motherland and freedom. Long live Czechoslovakia. As these words sounded, the thousands in the street uttered a single, deep-throated cheer. It was the roar of a people who says, better to die on your feet than to live like slaves on your knees. Trams were piled into. Taxicabs and private cars commandeered. Thousands rushed frantically to clasp their wives, perhaps for the last time. Collect a knife, fork, and spoon two days of food and an extra pair of shoes. From the railway stations named after Masaryk, the president of Czechoslovakia, and Wilson, the president of the United States of America, these soldiers-to-be fanned out in dozens of directions to stand under arms in their appointed places. This is Eleanor Packard, 
United Press Correspondent in Czechoslovakia. I arrived here this evening and thought I had suddenly fallen into a pot of ink. Prague, whose main street, the Vaklovsky Namesti, rivals Broadway in the brilliancy of its electric signs at night, couldn't be distinguished from the rest of the city, which was all in darkness. The street looked like a charcoal line drawn through a pool of tar. With the aid of a creeping taxi with blue headlights, I finally found the Hotel Ambassador, where the newspaper fraternity foregather, and, over beer and whiskey, try to get news out of each other. Sitting around in the lobby, which was lighted by blue lamps, everybody was talking about the note which the British minister, Mr. B.C. Newton, delivered to the Czechoslovak government today, and which is supposed to contain Germany's final demands. Most of the newspaper men, however, were optimistic that somehow or other a Pacific solution is to be found. The Czech people themselves seem definitely determined to hold out for the minimum concession of territory. It is this determination that has impressed me most in the changed aspect of the city. The American journalist Eleanor Packard. We quite often hear it said that in the run-up to World War II, no one quite realised the scale of the threat that Nazi Germany posed in Europe. When Hitler set his eyes on Czechoslovakia, there were plenty of politicians in Western Europe who really seemed to believe his promise that the Czech borderlands, the so-called Sudetenland, were his last territorial claim. But Czech Radio's archives show only too clearly that here in Prague there were plenty of people who were quite aware of the worldwide menace that Hitler posed. As Britain and France pursued their policy of appeasement towards Germany, these were voices that tragically remained unheard. Here, for example, is the Prague left-wing journalist Kurt Konrad, who on the 17th of September 1938, a few days before the Munich Agreement was signed, hit the nail on the head in describing Hitler's real ambitions for the Czechoslovak Republic. According to his conviction, Hitler wants the whole of Czechoslovakia, not only Sudetenland, and no concessions in the Sudeten-German question could satisfy the ever-increasing appetite of the Third Reich as long as these concessions were to preserve the sovereignty and unity of the Republic. He means to weaken and crush the Republic and turn it into a vassal state of Germany. According to his opinions, the airplanes constructed in the highly efficient Czechoslovakian factories should appear in the service of the Third Reich above London bearing deadly freight. Kurt Conrad was spot on. Within two years, bombs were falling on London, and Hitler really did use Czech armaments, and in particular tanks, in his invasion of Western Europe, weapons that he had gained without a shot being fired. Kurt Conrad paid a high price for his clear-sightedness. He was arrested not long after Nazi troops fulfilled another of his predictions and stormed into Prague in March 1939, and he was to perish in a Gestapo prison in Dresden in 1941. Another prominent Czech who had no illusions about Hitler was the professor and historian Jan Slavik, who spoke on Radio Prague on the 29th of September 1938, pointing out the hypocrisy of Hitler's claims to be defending the civil rights of Czechoslovakia's German minority. If opinions are being voiced today that Germany is fighting for the right of self-determination for the German people, they have to be answered as follows. He has no right to expound these high principles who is treading upon them by his theories of the supremacy of his race, by his theories of master and slave nations. Our conscience is clear. 
Our democratic state has been and is ready to give equal rights to all its nationalities, but on the other side, those who want to make use of the right of self-determination against us have no moral right to do so until they proclaim before the whole world the principle that they recognize the equality of all nations as well as their right to live. Until they disclaim the program of violent conquest of the territories of other European nations, as it is outlined in Adolf Hitler's book, My Struggle, their excited shoutings about the rights of their nation remains a mere sound. By a bitter irony, Professor Slavik's warning was broadcast on the very same day that Hitler and Mussolini and the British and French Prime Ministers Neville Chamberlain and Edouard Daladier met in Munich to grant Hitler nearly a third of Czechoslovakia's territory. Sadly, Mr. Chamberlain was not one of those who listened to Radio Prague's English broadcasts. He returned to London with a promise of peace for our time, but just 11 months later, Europe was at war. We regard the agreement signed last night and the Anglo-German naval agreement as symbolic of the desire of our two peoples never to go to war with one another again. And that's all for now from Radio Prague International.